So when I was a new seminary teacher about 20 years ago, there was a quote by Elder Packer that by today's standard went totally viral. And it was read to students as a way to encourage them, embolden them, and to make them realize that they were just amazing young people. In fact, more amazing than anyone had ever even imagined before. It went something like, you were once generals in the war in heaven. One day when you're in the spirit world, everyone will be around and they'll all be talking about what prophet did you live with? And some people will say, well, I was with Moses when he parted the Red Sea. Another might say, I fought with Captain Moroni. And as you stand there in amazement, and this is the part that we love the most, someone will ask you, which of the prophets did you live with? And when you say Gordon B. Hinckley's, a hush will fall over every hall and corridor in heaven and all in attendance will bow in your presence. You were held back 6,000 years because you were the most talented, most obedient, and most courageous, and most righteous. Are you still? Unquote. I love that quote so much that I made handouts. <laughs> I gave it to every student. I read it all the time. And then guess what, guys? He never said it. In fact, in 2008, the First Presidency released an official statement that this specific quote should not be used in church talks, classes, bulletins, or newsletters, and that it was also instructed to the bishops and people who received this letter to correct anyone who attempted to perpetuate the use. And what I learned from that experience in my first year of teaching seminary was to fact check everything. No matter who gives you the quote, no matter who says it's awesome, you got to fact check it. And today's guest and his work is going to totally back me up on that lesson that I learned. And we're here to share that lesson with you. Welcome to the Sunday on Monday study group. The Desert Bookshelf Plus original is brought to you by LDS Living. And our episode is a bonus episode, so it's a little bit different. And I am so excited to introduce you to Keith Erickson. Hi, Keith. How are you? I'm great. Now, Keith is the author of a new book titled Real Versus Rumor, and it's real good. And he's also the director of the Church History Library. And so I'm excited to have him on today. How'd you like that for an intro? You like my story? That was a fantastic story. I'm so glad you learned the lesson. The hard way. (laughs) Oh, boy, did I ever. In fact, Elder Packer, didn't he come out and say he released an official statement, didn't he? Yeah, before the statement you referenced, he had released one as president of the Quorum of the Twelve that said he didn't say it, none of his brethren said it, and further, none of them even believe it. So they wouldn't have said anything like it. So, yeah, very clear. So that's what we're going to talk about today is rumors and stories and quotes that get passed around. And Keith, you have recently come out with a book that is really good. It's called Real Versus Rumor. I finished reading it and I really, really liked it. There are so many things in there. You can see all my little sticky notes. People are going to want to know what you wrote on that little tab. They can see your handwriting. They're going to want to know what my notes are. Keith, it really was a good book. I got, well, I, thank you. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I appreciate when someone pays a price to do anything like that. Today, we're going, to, we're going to talk a little bit about your book and some fun church history that's in your book, Real Versus Rumor. And is it real or is it a rumor? But before we even get into your book, I just want to know who you are, first of all. So Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you born? I was born way, way back in a hospital. <laughs> that's one of my jokes. I grew up in Maryland and okay. people would often ask, were you born in the church? I would always answer, they'd say, were you born in the church? I'd say, no, I was born in a hospital. <laughs> but yeah, I grew up in Maryland and My parents were members of the church. My mom grew up in Vermont, my dad in Kansas. They met at BYU. And then my dad was a civil engineer. He worked on a variety of things. The subway in Baltimore is what brought them there. And then he did other things in highways and road construction. So yeah, that was my growing up place. Neat. Do you have any siblings? 
I do. I'm the oldest of seven. And the four right after me are sisters. And I have four daughters. And so that's been kind of my experience growing up with girls. The youngest two are brothers, but they were born when I was 16 and then 19. One of them was born just right before I left on a mission. So oh, wow. uh, I think we added it up once. We lived in the same, under the same roof, my brother and I, for like five weeks of our, <laughs> our lives. But, oh my uh, gosh. So yeah, oldest of seven. That's crazy. And I love that you have four younger sisters and then you have four daughters. That's cute. Yeah. So you, you know, you're I, all about it, women. It's been great. Is that your next book? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be a fun one. You know, there was even a point one time, you know, they didn't have a lot of people. So I was the pianist for the Relief Society in Baltimore at one time. And it was kind of funny. It was like the top secret meeting. I couldn't go in. So I'd have to sit outside the room while they did, you know, announcements and whatever. And then they would let me in to play the song while they sang. And then we did a little practice song back in the day. And then I had to leave. I was banished quickly. So, Oh, my goodness. That's a good story. Are all of you piano players in your family? Many, not all. One sister's a concert pianist, so she kind of made all of us embarrassed and, mm-hmm. and we quit. I mean, I mean, we still play, <laughs> but she's really, really good. And the rest of us just, you know, Dabble. do whatever. Yeah, just play we, for people in church. We play when they ask us to at church or whatever. So, Okay, I really like that story. I appreciated that. That was fun. Now, you went on a mission. Where did you serve your mission? So I served in southern Brazil. Uh, mm-hmm. Porto Alegre is the name of the city. And it, at the time, it was the North Mission. And they've since divided things. But there were just two in that state. Okay. What year did you graduate from high school? Uh, 1994. Okay. Just trying to figure out where you are age-wise. Yeah. To me, so. As your much older and wiser friend, Keith, I'm glad you could oh. join me today on the oh, podcast. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your mentorship. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so after your mission, then what did you do? I was working in Maryland at a car manufacturing plant. We mm-hmm. made seats for a variety of different automobile lines. And right when I came back, the company was expanding into Brazil. And so oh, wow. I knew the work. And I knew the language. My plant manager was kind of like a rising superstar in the company, kind of a hot shot. And so he got appointed to this kind of strategic launch team, this special team from across the company to go launch. So I went into his office. I said, Hey, I, you know, I speak Portuguese. I know the process and I'd be happy to help. And he totally brushed me off. I said, well, whatever, you know, here I am. So a week later, the assistant plant manager who was running things tapped me on the shoulder on the floor. He said, Hey, are you still available? And I said, <laughs> of course I am. And so I went back to Brazil and spent a better part of a year there. It was the 90s, so the economy was booming and things were yeah. growing. And it was just a really exciting time to be there. So, Wow, what a fun job. That's incredible. One of the things I learned was humility. Because you mm. come home from a mission and you kind of think, you know, I went there and I know the culture and I speak the language. When I started working with employees on the assembly line, there were lots of words I didn't know. Some of them were colorful. <laughs> uh, those were fun. <laughs> But just basic words, like most humans know words like wrench or hammer or bolt or assembly right. line. I didn't know any of those words. And so <laughs> it was like, well, I could tell you about Joseph Smith. And they're like, no, 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 that's not, what we're, that's not what we're doing here. We're building cars. It was just a chance to, you know, learn a lot more. 
I can totally appreciate your story because after my mission, I spoke Spanish and I got a job at a homeless shelter when I graduated from college. And I told them, I'm like, oh, I speak Spanish. And they brought me pamphlets to translate into Spanish. And I was like, oh yeah, do you have anything about the priesthood or Sasadercio or the Relief Society? Because <laughs> I don't know any of the words that are in this pamphlet. I thought I knew Spanish. So yeah, that is a great, great experience. I love that you just told us that story. Good story. So after Brazil, then did you go to college? What did that look like for you? I did. So I had kind of a long life in college. Once I added it up and I told my kids, I've been in school for 25 years, you know, from kindergarten to whatever. They were like, what? You're insane. So yeah, I did a short version. I did a bachelor's degree in sociology and then a master's in history and a PhD in history. And then later things worked out and it was just the right thing to do. I actually got a master's of business administration as well. Oh, So a long time in school. That is so cool. I did my bachelor's in sociology and my master's is in public administration. So I got the MPA instead of the MBA. Did you go to BYU? The undergraduate and the history master's were at BYU. Mm -hmm. Then PhD was in the Indiana University. I was a history professor at the University of Texas. And then I became an administrator. I became the special assistant to the president to run the centennial celebration for the school. And so it was while there, I thought, you know, uh, I should just get an MBA. So I broke every system at the school because simultaneously I was a faculty, a student, and a staff member. And, <laughs> and no system was designed for that use case. And so no. I was always having funny experiences. Like I'd go to the library and check out a book and they'd, they'd be like, okay, bring it back next week. I'm like, no, I'm a faculty member. <laughs> I get it for six months. And they're like, no, you're not. You're a student. You're a student. <laughs> so. What a unique perspective that must have given you. Now, you said you had four daughters, so we can assume you have a wife. Tell uh, us yep. how you met her. Can you tell us that cute story? I mean, the moral is go to church. We <laughs> met at church. We were in the same singles ward at BYU. Were you like in the same family home evening group? How, how exactly did you uh, We later were. So one of my roommates was in charge of that. And so after we started dating, I said, you know, I don't want to go hang out with other people. Rearrange the family home evening group so that we can go, <laughs> go hang out at the same time. So uh, that worked. Maybe the precursor to that story, this is probably the cute story you wanted. I'm a girl. So, yeah, so give me my wife uh, was the Relief Society president. And one of the first official things I did was complain to her. <laughs> so I said, hey, this is totally not fair. The women in the war get home teachers and visiting teachers back in the olden days. So you get to meet four people right away who watch out for you. The men in the ward, we only get home teachers. There's this great inequity here and, and I want help. So a few days later, she and another uh, woman knocked on the door and she said, we're your visiting teachers. I was like, okay, that's great. And so... Maybe I might be one of the only people to marry my visiting teacher as part of (laughs) my legacy also. That is such a good story. Oh my gosh. Kudos to your wife. I don't know if she ever officially entered it in, you know, the church system that she was officially (laughs) my visiting teacher, but she definitely was. Oh gosh, that is so great. Boy, I wish I'd known about that trick when I was at BYU. And in my late (laughs) 20s, early 30s. (laughs) now, Now the secret's out. Oh, that's fun. What do you like about her? She's just tremendously talented. Everything she tries just works out. And it's totally random. We moved here to Utah six or seven years ago, and our yard was a little bit 
whatever. And so she like takes up gardening. And now we've mm. got flowers and plants. I'm like, how did you do this? She's like, well, I just, you know, started working on it. She has a kind of an artistic background. So she's just kind of got that artist's eye for mm -hmm. perfection and that ability to kind of focus on things and everything she touches, you know, blooms. So it's pretty cool. Ooh, that is cool. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you sharing your personal life with us. That's fun stuff and great stories. So now let's jump back to your schooling. So you get your master's and then you get your PhD. And I'm just curious to know why history? Where did you get the bug for history? Were you born that way? Were you curious as a kid? Tell us that story. Yeah, I definitely wasn't born that way. And in fact, in <laughs> high school, I hated history. I had a couple of bad teachers. Your high school history teacher is the biggest variable in your experience. Great yeah. teachers make for a great experience and a poor teacher doesn't. So I actually took some AP classes, passed the test. And I remember the day when I kind of celebrated and I said, oh, look, my AP class in history got me out of every history requirement at BYU. <laughs> I will never have to take another history class again. <laughs> so it was really a backdoor kind of experience. I was in a religion class at BYU. The professor one day said, hey, will you talk to me after class? Which is like a weird thing. Like I'm scared. So after class, I go up and he says, hey, I need a research assistant. You know, you're doing well in my class and you make interesting comments. I wonder if you would like to be my research assistant. I said, well, I have zero idea about what that means. And I've never been one. And he said, well, don't worry. I will help you. This professor was uh, Richard Bennett. And mm. what I didn't know was just a kid in the class that he'd been a director of archives in Canada for 20 years before he came uh, wow. to the religion faculty. He'd researched and written several books, prize-winning books. He researches in many areas, but probably the one he's most known for is the uh, Pioneer Trail and that experience. And so I just show up as a stupid kid who knows nothing. <laughs> and, we, and we literally sit in a library and we just go through a step at a time. And I get kind of woven into his research process. And that was really interesting <laughs> to read journals wow. and original mm -hmm. documents and primary sources. So it was coming out of that experience where I said, you know, I'm going to go try a history degree. And that's really what it was. It was just a the master's degree felt like a, a kind of short way to your program. Well, let me try it. Mm -hmm. uh, so literally, my first college history class was in the master's program. I was a little bit behind as an understatement, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I made it. Is there anything you remember learning when you said you were kind of behind? I'm just curious. Is there anything you remember learning thinking, how did I not know this? Oh, yeah, like everything. And, yeah, <laughs> and the people... <laughs> My peers in the class, they knew all kinds of stuff. And I went into it the way undergrads think about learning. You know, the professor assigned me to read an article. And so I read that article word for word. But I had no other background knowledge or anything to apply to it. Wow. And in grad school, you don't just kind of regurgitate the article. You're talking about it in the context of the literature and other things and trends and sources. And my peers knew all of those things. And I'm sitting there staring at the article <laughs> saying, that wasn't in here. How do you know that? Why, why are you saying those things? It's so fascinating to me how you kind of go in and you just feel like this neophyte. 
just new in this program. You've never even heard of history before. And then you become the director of the church history department. I mean, that is really amazing. How did that happen? I am probably not the best person to tell the story because I don't know it all. I only mm-hmm. know pieces of it, but I'll share the pieces. I was told later that there was some meeting where they looked around at who was out, who were historians and doing things that they would one day want to recruit. And somehow my name came up in that meeting. Where I come into the story is like out of the blue, somebody who worked in the church history department, hey, would you ever want to work for church history? Uh, And I just thought it was like a joke or something. I'm like, uh... Uh, probably not. You know, I like what I'm doing in Texas. Uh, so they're like, okay, whatever. And then about every, I don't know, 18 months, two years, some other person from the church history department would find me somewhere and ask, hey, have you ever thought about working for the church? And so, oh, eventually I kind of got this stock answer, which would end the conversation. I'd say, is there actually a job? <laughs> and they'd be like, no. I said, well, I, you know, I have real children. They eat real food. <laughs> and so I can't really answer any kind of hypothetical question. Come back if you ever have a real job and I'll think about <laughs> it. And so fast forward a couple of years, they call up and say, hey, you know how you said uh, if we ever had a real job, you'd consider it? I said, yeah. They said, well, we have one. <laughs> <That's>, okay. <laughs> Well, I told you I would consider it. (laughs) So yeah, it was seven years ago now, 2014, I became the director of the Church History Library. Wow, that is an excellent story. You know, one of the things I liked about your story is when you started at the beginning, you said, I don't know the whole story, but I know some bits and pieces. And so I'm going to share the bits and pieces I know with you. It made me think of your book. That's what's so cool about your book. Especially when I was reading it, the message I got was, we don't know the whole story. There's one chapter specifically that I loved, which is chapter seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter seven, when you said we're not all alike. We don't know the whole story of what it was like back in the past. We just know bits and pieces. And then we take our knowledge of what we know today and we just apply our time, our standards to stories from the past. Like just the way you wrote that chapter was so good. And your whole book is good. So this is what I want to know. What prompted you to write the book, Real Versus Rumor? And the timing couldn't be more perfect because it's church history year and we hear all sorts of crazy stories. Some are true and some are not. And so I just want to know why you wrote this. There's probably two answers to that. One is short and one is long. We got time. Uh, The the long (laughs) answer, and not long in storytelling, but long maybe in development, is that as a historian, my emphasis, my expertise was in an area that we call public history. So it's a little more detached. It's less about, you know, I'm going to study a subject from the past, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or whatever, and more about how does the public interact with history when they encounter at a museum or a national park site or uh, on a documentary. So I've long been interested in the interaction between the public and historical knowledge and how they learn things. And so In that career, I was regularly thinking about researching, writing, publishing in this field of public history, also history teaching and learning. I worked future school teachers and then returning school teachers who came back for master's degree. So there was always a sense of it's not enough to know stuff 
how do you disseminate it? How do you share it in classrooms mm-hmm. or interpretation? So that's kind of the big backdrop. And then when I started to work in the church history library, I just regularly encountered situations where people make mistakes, they say foolish things, they do foolish things. And the reason really isn't necessarily that they're foolish, but that they've brought bad assumptions, bad backgrounds. The way they think history works is not the way it works. And if they actually knew how history works, they wouldn't do the foolish things. People struggle with history, and there are things that people struggle with. And and one one of my observations was, you know, that's not really like a faith question. It's like a historical question. And we can answer that pretty easily as a historian. But if you go in and say, well, this is a question about my faith and my worthiness, and maybe I'm not worthy, and maybe I should doubt everything. Yeah. And I would say, well, you could just double check the sources. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself regularly telling people, you know, how to think about history. And then that just led to how to pull this all together in a kind of church history context. Well, I'm curious to know, as you were explaining that, is there an experience of your own that you have where you read something and it kind of rocked you a little bit? And rather than saying, it's not a faith thing, it's a history thing. Was there anything for you that you're like, whoa, wait a minute, I got to figure this out? Yeah. My challenge didn't really have church history or doctrine or anything part of it. I went through the same experience of how could there be multiple accounts of an event? Mm -hmm. Because I had just read one textbook in 11th grade, my AP textbook, and whatever was there is what the teacher wanted me to say back to her on the test, and that's the answer. Now I'm thrown into a world where there are multiple accounts and we don't know. Are you talking about the first vision or just... Well, I'm just talking about in all history, because that's the way all history works. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm leading is that most people, when they have kind of a crisis... The first time they ever encounter multiple accounts of something is multiple accounts of the first vision. And then they're worried there's some trick being played upon them. For my experience, the first time I encountered multiple accounts of things, it was like Revolutionary War history and colonists and British. Surprise, the British and the colonists had different views on what happened, (laughs) you know. But to me, that was like, well, wait a minute. The textbook said, wait, where is the textbook? You know, like... And it was totally disorienting. So I, I had that kind of disorientation experience without church history in it. And that's where I okay. had to kind of think about how do we know things? What do we know? Are we sure that we know things? But I did all of that in the context of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, the Revolutionary War. But when I started to pick up the literature on church history, I already kind of knew that there would be multiple accounts of things and that this is how history works and we might not know everything and there might be differing interpretations and what historians do is figure out the best interpretation uh, and that might change over time. So when I jumped into a Mormon history, it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, sure. Why wouldn't there be? And actually, it's great. Isn't it wonderful (laughs) that Joseph (laughs) Smith shared this experience more than once? You know, if somebody were to uncover tomorrow a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote about the Gettysburg Address that said, you know, this is what I was trying to say, and this is what I hoped would happen. We would love that. And then we we flip over to a church setting. We say, no, there cannot be any other source about (laughs) this. This is the only source I know that I've heard about. And what we really need to do intellectually is kind of grow up and say, Mm -hmm. no, 
The textbook version is good for grade school, but now that I'm an adult, I can grow up a little cognitively and I can deal with ambiguity and nuance and lack of sources. And that's how life works. Because then people have the disconnect. We think, oh, church history was so simple, but my life is so complicated and God must be punishing me. No, God just dealt with them the same way he deals with us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We tell tidy little stories about them where everything works out and they live happily ever after. And yes, they suffered crossing the plains, but there was faith in every footstep. Maybe not every footstep. Maybe (laughs) the majority of footsteps. Uh, (laughs) But that's the disconnect. It's the stories that we tell don't match the historical reality. Right. And then we have a hard time applying them to our reality because we don't have faith in every footstep. We don't know the end. We have, we're not living happily ever after. We're in the middle of the mess. And we yeah. need stories that can help us see that. Yes. I love the perspective that you just shared on all of that. And I've noticed we do love an outlier story in our culture. We just love it. And it's tidy and neat. And then when you find out the rest of the story, like I think one of my favorite ones is Brother Moyle, who, you know, on a crutch walked from South or from Spanish Fork to Salt Lake to do holiness to the Lord in the Salt Lake Temple. And then everybody started doing temple walks. Do you remember that a couple of years ago in his in honor yeah. of his name? At one point I was studying it and I thought, well, what about his wife? What's the deal with Sister Moyle? And then I researched her and I said, Wait, now there's the story we should be telling. She was back in Spanish Fork raising seven kids by herself, tending the farm for weeks on end. Now that's the faith in every footstep. <laughs> yeah, I just appreciate your perspective in saying that. And we had Anthony Sweat on at the very beginning of the year talking about the different versions of the first vision. And he had the same reaction as you did. He said, I wish there were more versions. I wish there was more stuff we could read. I don't feel like we have enough. And that was really refreshing to hear. So just how you put it in the perspective of history versus church, you're right. If we had more history about Abraham Lincoln, we wouldn't read that and all of a sudden go, well, he was a stupid president of the United States and now he's not real and we probably shouldn't believe anything he said. No, we would think he's even greater or grander. So that was really cool. I like that perspective. So let's talk about your book then because I want everyone to read it. It's a great book that has incredible stories. What I like the most were many of the stories that I have heard it was fun for you to kind of put some things to rest or to shed more light on and you just suddenly go, oh, I didn't realize that or now that wasn't true. We are not going to talk about those stories though because go get his book and read it. It's a great summer read. I highly recommend it. What I want to know is what you couldn't put in the book because of space. Tell us some of those stories. Well, maybe I'll start with some categories and then you can figure out if we want to dive in. Good, okay. One category and this one got all the way to the point of being a chapter that we ultimately cut, uh, was about how to apply this approach to history to family history, to your own Mm -hmm. family stories, and how to verify or not the rumors in your own family history. A second category, and this one I ended up cutting early on, but one of the things that happens in the book, which I think is really important, is I, I pause for things that I call everyday encounters. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do is say, we're saying these things about history, but they really also apply to parenting, to your personal scripture study, to your experience at church. So I had several everyday encounters that were about teaching. And then the third one that really got kind of cut at the end for space were a lot of stories from U.S. history and world history. The reason they were in there 
is similar to what we were just saying about Abraham Lincoln. I wanted to make the point that all history works this way, not just church history. And so I had a lot of other examples of the concepts of the book, but many of those for space got cut. There are a few that are in there. Lincoln appears several mm-hmm. times, and George Washington here and there. So those are categories. Mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, any of those sound fun to dive into. Yes, or... but I think genealogy. I think we have a lot okay. of listeners that would love the genealogy aspect. So I'm picking door number one, John. No, door kidding. number one. All door number right. one, Keith, here we it's go. It's your lucky day, the bell or something. Cash needs <laughs> yeah, to fall exactly. from the ceiling. I, I choose door uh, number one. All right, let's do that. One of the places I started with is for many people, we don't have ancestors who left a lot of records. And that's one of the ironies of history. There are a few people who leave records or that survive, and they get an outsized voice in what happens because we have Wilford Woodruff's journal. So we rely on it all the time. And the 30 other people that were there that day, we don't know what they thought or experienced because they never wrote anything. And most of us, our ancestors are the people who didn't write much. And so mm-hmm. what we get are little rumors or stories that pass down. And so those become a starting point. So I introduced kind of a way to start with those rumors and to study them and then go in and try and verify them. So what if you have a story that your ancestor was Joseph Smith's bodyguard? This is actually one that happens to me a lot when I speak about church history or family history. Someone will come up to me and they'll say, and you can tell, it's almost like they stand a little taller because they're really, really proud of this. They tell Mm me, my ancestor was Joseph Smith's bodyguard. And I know what they want from me. They, you know, they want me to tell them they're wonderful and their ancestors great. So I don't say that. Uh, <laughs> I pause. I go to the point where it's just too awkward. Like I should have said something. And I just leave it hanging there, this long pause. And then I say, your ancestor failed. <laughs> no, you right? don't. <laughs> right? Isn't this the dumbest thing to brag about? To boast about? And people go around all the time boasting that their ancestor was Joseph Smith's bodyguard. That's um, hilarious, Keith. And so... <laughs> you, mean, do they become so deflated when you say that? Like, Well, yeah, the, their reaction is really interesting. I wish I had a camera all of the time. Um, oh, me too. But there are a couple of things to kind of unpack in there. Sorry, I'm still laughing about that because it's so funny. Well, okay, okay, that's so good. So one of the things to unpack is they, the person in the 21st century, is making an assumption that their ancestor was like the secret service for the president today, that there was somebody, you know, with an earpiece and packing heat (laughs) and right there close by Joseph all the time and do it personally and, and all of that. Well, so the first problem with that assumption is There were no bodyguards in the 19th century in the modern uh, sense of bodyguards. There wasn't even law enforcement until after Joseph's death, which was part of the problem. There wasn't Mm -hmm. an official standard Mm -hmm. law enforcement. It was a vigilante justice on the frontier. So that whole image of my ancestor as a secret serviceman is wrong. But that's what they're, they're dreaming of, that their ancestor was close, spent a lot of time, was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice and defend the prophet. And all of those things are filled in by their imagination based on what they think modern bodyguards do. So most likely, their ancestor 
participated in one of a couple kinds of experiences. We do have a couple of experiences and, and records of those experiences where people either kind of committed to defend the prophet or the church or Nauvoo. One of them was the Camp of Israel experience, often called Zion's mm-hmm. Camp. And that was a sense where people marched with the prophet and they wanted to defend him and the church and the revelations. We also have some records of people in Nauvoo. There was a, a local kind of volunteer police force in Nauvoo. We have a couple of inventory lists that have been published as part of the Joseph Smith papers where people could go in and find out if their ancestor was part of that experience. There also was a militia in Nauvoo, the Nauvoo Legion. Uh, we have membership uh, list for that. So most likely what has happened is their ancestor had one of those experiences. And then as it kind of trickled down through the generations, it has been morphed into a bodyguard kind of experience. Mm-hmm. But unless your ancestor was Porter Rockwell, he's probably the only figure in church history who spent a lot of time with Joseph and in the context of, if not a kind of outright protection defense, at least kind of uh, hiding or kind of being fugitives, you know, kind of going from place to place to avoid detection or capture. The end of the story is your your ancestor didn't actually fail. Your ancestor (laughs) was probably one of these other things that wasn't responsible to keep Joseph safe that day. No, that is a great story. Well, it reminds me of my own family because we have a longstanding story that my great grandfather was a Yugoslavian coal miner. And that at one point, the coal mine was trembling and about to fall. And he held the ceiling up so people could flee for their lives out of the cave. And he saved hundreds of men's lives. Wow, he's really yeah. strong. I mean, I haven't really done the research, but knowing my family, he probably just shared his peanut butter and jelly sandwich with someone at lunch. <laughs> it's just morphed into saving people's lives. <laughs> my Uzalak family's a little crazy, so it wouldn't surprise me at all. But uh, yeah, it's that's just... a great story. But, <laughs> you know, that's a helpful story because there are details. And and it's the details that you need. So he was a coal miner. So where? Can we find the region? Can we find the mine? Can we find the company? Uh, If we can do that, there's a time frame. And if you can start to line up, then something like the collapse of a mine in a local community uh, would be big news in the local paper. It totally would. (laughs) So local, you know, then you could go to a local news source and figure out, you know, was there a, a collapse? And and there may be something in there, you know, that uh, somebody's foot was trapped and he pulled them out or something, you know. But having the details in a family rumor, I love a detailed rumor because it at least gives you little hooks to start with. If it's a vague rumor, like my ancestor was awesome, well, there's, you know, there's really nothing to, to, <laughs> to start go on with that. there. <laughs> Other than your own humble opinion. <laughs> uh, what's your hourly rate, Keith? Can I charge you to do my family research? <laughs> you know, uh People oh, have hired awesome. me to do that. This was this was another story that was in there. This was one of my early experiences. Way back when I had just been kind of a research assistant, and I was then a master's student, and I was looking for things, uh, a family approached me, and I won't say the family's name because the, mm-hmm, I'll probably sure. hear uh, again. Protect the innocent. <clears throat> but the, the family approached me, and you know, because I'm cheap, right? I'm a master's student, and they're like, you know, we do some research. And they told me what their ancestor's story was. Here was the story. And it had four or five points. I go in, I start to do the research, and I found that every one of the points of their story was wrong. Oh. <laughs> uh, and the story really elevated their ancestor. And 
there's a lesson buried in here. The way I actually reconstructed the story was I found in the church archives back then a reminiscence by the ancestor later in his life where he told his life story. And it was different from the family story in all the key points. So like the family had really elevated his tie with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And in his story, he was invited to participate in a project because there was a building committee. Uh, Mm. And so the building committee wrote to him. Well, the family story, Joseph Smith singled him out to do this thing. So there had been these exaggerations. So when I went back to them, I said, your family story says this about your ancestor, but your ancestor says this about himself. (laughs) And and they didn't like that at all. Um, So, yeah. Um, But there's an interesting middle layer there that we had a documentary record, which helps, I think, explain a lot of things. The reminiscence from the ancestor was written later in life, and it was written in his own handwriting, and it was really, really hard to read his handwriting. And it was Mm -hmm. faded and and just kind of uh, scratchy old, you know, bad handwriting. He wasn't super educated. Well, so in the same file, with his this handwritten reminiscence was a typed version that had been prepared by his granddaughter. Hmm. And the typed version told the family story. But they had been filed together. And I, you know, I don't know where it started, but the presentation of the typed version was that it was an exact typescript of the really hard to read handwriting. And the first paragraph or two did look the same. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think most researchers would look at the handwriting, it's hard to read, look at the typed version and say, oh yeah, it's looking good. And they just go with the typed version. And so I read the handwriting version and that's where it all came apart. But the mm-hmm. takeaway for me was interesting. One of them is about grandchildren. The grandchildren seem to be the generation who embellish things. And so if you're looking at family history and and there's a really distinguished ancestor and it's the grandchild who's the narrator, you know, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just says to me, pay attention. And I've thought about it in my own experience. And, you know, we grew up with our parents and we're really close to them. We see all their flaws and parents don't usually emerge from parenthood as heroes, maybe friends but not larger-than-life heroes. No. But grandparents are farther enough away. They're not, you know, in a traditional family, because I know there are families where grandparents do raise the grandchildren, but in a traditional kind of setting, grandparents are far enough away that they're not doing, you know, all of the punishment. You know? Right. Grandma has never taken away my daughter's phone, so grandma never has any reason <laughs> to be a villain. Um, it's so true. There's something that happens there, and I think, Eventually, and it's not like teenagers, but when people grow up to be, you know, whenever they start to think about their ancestors, 30s or 40s or something, their parents are still alive, probably in the kind of traditional model. But the grandparents may be just gone, uh, that are Mm -hmm. memories, or they're kind of winding up. And then, you know, it just kind of opens the door. And that's what happened uh, in this specific family's case, that it was that generation. But then the other takeaway was, you know, the granddaughter had prepared this typed version. And that typed version, I actually saw 
in family scrapbooks and, and you know, photocopies of that old typewriter. You can see the same typewriters yeah. look the same. So whatever kind of happens in that grandparent generation then gets typed and photocopied and disseminated. So the other takeaway is often we're doing our family history from that granddaughter point in time, not the ancestor point in time. So we're inheriting all of the things that came later. So anyway, yeah, yeah you asked That's for funny. hiring me. If you want to go through all of that drama, <laughs> you know, well, maybe we would talk. <sighs> but uh, Well, uh, yeah, you can't do any more damage to my family than we've already done to ourselves. So... <laughs> I can guarantee anything you'd find, you'd be like, really? That sounds great. (laughs) We're crazy. So, oh my gosh. You know what, Keith? That was so great. I'm so glad I chose door number one. That was really insightful. Good door. door. You want another one? Yes, please. Uh, All right. I mean, this is always sad. When they get cut, you're like, oh, I love these stories. And they're, they're gone. When I was at the church history library, family came in and they said, Joseph Smith gave this copy of the Book of Mormon to our ancestor. Hmm. And they had built up a huge family lore about the book, almost to the point of some family members, not all, but some, it felt like they were attributing almost kind of mystical powers to the (laughs) book itself uh, because Joseph gave it to their ancestors. There was a sense like, you know, before you go on a mission, you should hold this book or, you know, something (laughs) like that. Well, so the book itself, the title page was gone. The first several pages were gone. I think uh, the first page of it was in what's now Second Nephi. So it was missing a big portion of the front of the book, which is where, you know, the the title page lists the publication date and all that kind of thing. So uh, it was basically undated book. It's got a really kind of simple leather cover you know, so it looks kind of old and, and, and simple construction, not a newer kind of thing that would, would stand right out as, no, that's a new book. And then uh, written in the front in handwriting said, given to the ancestor's name by, and then it has a handwritten Joseph Smith. And so they were, and it had a date, the 1840s. So the first kind of uh, interesting thing was that it didn't totally look like Joseph Smith's signature. And Joseph doesn't have a really distinctive signature because he's not a really good writer and he doesn't like to write. And And if he can avoid writing, he avoids it. Uh, hmm. But every now and then, I mean, we do have instances of him signing his name. But what I, I guess where I'm going is he never did a developed kind of a, a constant stylized uh, signature like we tend to do today with you're signing checks all the time or signing right. homework. You do, you do that over and over. He didn't do that over and over. Joseph's signature is hard because, like I said, we have few samples and, and there's a variation. So, mm-hmm. so I didn't rule it out. So we ended up taking another approach. And to do this, need a little bit of context about uh, publishing. So they were publishing by hand setting each letter. So this isn't type oh. it up on Word and print it on a printer. In the 19th century, each letter is its own little piece of metal. And the typesetter would read the written text they would assemble it letter by letter in reverse, mm-hmm. and the letters are raised so that you stamp them on ink and then stamp them on a page. But what that means is every edition of the book is retypeset. So the way that typesetting works is it, there's a, so much variation that the whole pages are different. It's not like, you know, sometimes you have a Word document and one sentence spills over or it doesn't or a little bit. I mean, it's really easy. 
you open into that page in Second Nephi, and it's totally different. So we opened the 1830 edition. If this was a book that Joseph gave, maybe it's 1830. Mm-hmm. No, totally different. So no. we go to the second edition in 1837. Open that one. Nope, uh, not even close. So the next edition that it's published was in 1840 in Nauvoo. We open that one. Nope, doesn't look like that one. There was a second one that's kind of similar to 1840 that was done in 1842, also in Nauvoo. They reused some of the same printing plates, but it wasn't that one either. The fifth edition, and this is the last one that was published in Joseph's Life, was published in Liverpool in 1841 when the Quorum of the Twelve was there. Copies made it back to Nauvoo. Emma Smith's copy is an Mm -hmm. 1841 Liverpool edition. They were a little bit nicer quality binding. They had better, you know, printing facilities in, in England and what than on the American frontier. The one that Hiram is reading from before the martyrdom is in 1841. Okay. We opened 1841. No, it's not that. So there are only wow. five editions of the Book of Mormon in Joseph Smith's lifetime. This book was not that book. <gasps> so then I was kind of hooked. I was like, well, now I got to find out what it is. <laughs> yeah. So we pull out, you know, all the other editions. And turns out it matches an 1849 edition that was made in Liverpool. So that's five years after Joseph was murdered. Unless you invent a kind of time travel uh, scenario, there's no way that Joseph Smith no. gave that book to their ancestor. And so that was also an interesting conversation. Wow. And I shared the findings first with like, the family elders, they had kind of a big family association, and they took it pretty well. And then they said, well, we have a family reunion this summer. We usually get, you know, eight or 900 people there. We want you to explain it to them. No. And so I did. No. Uh, it was kind of like going into the lion's den. And, you know, there were people right on the front row, arms folded, mm-hmm. just giving me the total stink eye, like, no, this is wrong. But, you know, I just kind of had to share what what we could verify, and in this case, what we couldn't. So, yeah, sometimes our cherished family stories don't pan out. <laughs> oh, that's a crazy story. I think what's crazy to me, too, is that someone forged his name. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it was then. a forged name. or uh, You can actually look back. Once you then say, okay, this wasn't Joseph's book, this is another book. There's probably a more plausible scenario, and this is the one I shared with the family. You know, what this finding is doesn't mean that Joseph didn't ever give a book to your ancestor. It Mm -hmm. just means he didn't give this book. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's probably a scenario, maybe it's the grandkids. I'm I'm inventing this part right now. I'm just imagining. This is the piece you're going to (laughs) add. But maybe it's the grandkids saying, we know there's a book that Joseph gave to grandpa what would it be? They look through the box of, of grandpa's books. They find the oldest looking shabby one. Mm-hmm. And they say, this is, it looks old. It must be this one. Then there's a way you read the note that it, it could be a third person. That could, could say, you know, given to our ancestor by Joseph Smith date. There's a plausible scenario where some family member is looking for a way to make the story work. And they, they basically find an artifact to fit the story rather than studying the artifact. And so uh, it goes from there. I think that's a kind way to look at it. I like that. That's good. And that's usually the way it happens. Yeah. You know, most of most inaccurate stories start by people who are well-meaning. 
They want, yeah. like you as a first-year seminary teacher, you wanted to tell the youth that they were important. And oh, yeah. the big message, you are important, you matter to God, is true, independent of the story <laughs> that we're using to push the, the big message. And so uh-huh. there's a lot of people who are well-meaning about, about big things, you know, that God loves us, He watches over us, He speaks to prophets, He, he protects pioneers. We, we want to tell those big stories, but we put little stories in, in to do the work, and they just, they just can't actually carry the full load of that, that bigger story that we want to tell. Yeah. Well, and truth be told, I probably wanted me to be a part of that story. I think this quote means me too, you guys, because I'm still in your generation. <laughs> well, you know, my wife... I was I, as incredible as you. <laughs> my wife and I have joked about that as our kids go to meetings and people don't use that quote, but they say, you know, you're a chosen generation and all this stuff. We're like, hey, what about us? Yeah. They were telling us that stuff in the 1980s. What happened? Yeah, 100%. I always think that. I'm like, yeah, so was I. Let's be clear. I'm part of that generation, you jerks. I was chosen before you were chosen. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally true. And if we really dissect the word generation, it's a lot longer than you think. So, oh my gosh, that's so great. Well, that was it. That's the end. Oh my gosh. This has been such a fun interview. Listen, here's what I want to do. I just want to, this is the part of the book that stood out to me the why for what you did and the why for reading real versus rumor. And I really love your words. This is what you said. Quote, I truly believe that learning how to analyze rumors, myths, and church history will improve our lives, making us better friends and neighbors, learners and teachers, parents and children, disciples and saints. The study of things as they were helps us understand things as they are and prepares us for things that are to come, all for the salvation of Zion. And that is exactly what this whole year of studying Doctrine and Covenants is, is for Zion and building up the people. And so the way you addressed all of these different rumors and myths in your book was just refreshing. And I loved reading that. And I highly recommend those of you who are listening, get the book. And it's a great gift to give to people. It's just fun to dive into some of these rumors you've heard throughout your life. And Keith sheds more light on many of them and puts some of them to bed, puts them to bed, puts them to rest. (laughs) He dispels some of those rumors. <laughs> I hope we put him off the stage. We put him off stories. the stage. Yeah, it's just a really good book. So, Keith, thank you for joining us today. This was a fun episode. I appreciate your candor and your stories and learning about you personally. That was really awesome. Well, thanks for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, so much fun. So, thank you, everybody. Go find the book, Real Versus Rumor. And if you want to learn more about Keith Erickson, you can find information about him and a picture in our show notes, which are found at ldsliving.com slash Sunday on Monday. So go check it out. And we'll put a link there so you can go to Desert Book and buy the book. You can also listen to it on Bookshelf Plus. While you have it open right now, just go download it and then read it because it's a good read. So have a great summer and we will see you next week. 